Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. I'm Carlos Prieto, this is Politico Dispatch, and today... The children who were lost were not only, you know, relatives and family members and things like that. Like, by this point, they would have been our elders, right? They would have been the language teachers and the ones to teach us about our cultures and our histories and things like that. We are talking about North America's history of boarding schools, both in the United States and in Canada, where Native children were taken from their homes and stripped of their culture and languages, often to never see their families again. We look at the school's history of abusing Native kids and the path to recovery that Native communities envisioned this time. First up, Canada. A few years ago, um, there was a Orange Shirt Day campaign that was initiated by a residential school survivor um, over in eastern Canada. Hello everyone, my name is Phyllis Webstad. The day started when I told my story for the first time in 2013 how my grandmother took me to town to Williams Lake from the reserve. She remembers her first day of residential school and her mom had bought her a beautiful blouse, an orange blouse. And she was so excited um, about this blouse that um, she wore it to school. When I attended the residential school, when I got there, my orange shirt was taken away and I never wore it again. And she remembers the heartbreak and the tears. She never had anything new and going to school was supposed to be uh, exciting for her. Uh, Little did she know that she would end up enduring uh, many years of all types of abuse. This is Chastity Delorme. I'm from Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada, from Treaty 4 Territory. Chastity is a member of the Cowess' First Nation, a First Nations band now located right in the center of Canada. She isn't the girl from the story, but she does carry some scars from the residential school system. Both my grandparents um, on my mom and my dad's side both went to uh, residential school. There's a reason I wanted to talk to her. This year's Canada Day was a little different than years past. Usually, the country celebrates its history and its identity with red and white everywhere. This year, orange, the color that has come to symbolize respect and support for indigenous kids put through the boarding school system. We talked on July 2nd, the day after Canada Day. All the major cities had rallies and marches. There was just a a sea of orange, orange shirts everywhere, orange flags. It shows that, um, that we all agree that this was wrong and there needs to be real reconciliation. I pretty much did not see any um, acknowledgement of it even being Canada Day and that was, you know, amazing. I'm a very proud Canadian. I think Canada's the best place in the world to live. But today is not a time to celebrate Canada. The residential school system in Canada ran for over 100 years as a joint church and state program. And even though the system's abuses against First Nations is no secret, 
The discovery of thousands of unmarked graves around some of the alleged school sites shows how much work still remains to confront the country's past. The developing story out of British Columbia, a First Nation says the remains of more than 200 children have been located. A Saskatchewan First Nation says it has found hundreds of unmarked graves at the site of another former residential school. As of yesterday, we have hit 751 unmarked graves. It would be centuries before these stories would become an accepted part of Canadian history, forcing Canadians to reckon with one of the darkest moments of its past and recognizing the abuses against Native peoples. Mr. Speaker, I stand before you today to offer an apology to former students of Indian residential schools. That's Canada's former Prime Minister, Indian Stephen Harper. Today we recognize that this policy of assimilation was wrong has caused great harm and has no place in our country. Starting in 2008, a federal commission was tasked with listening to the traumatic stories. When the principal used to beat up, the boys got the most uh, beating. Have uh, the supervisor come in there and, and basically take advantage of you. And spent seven years shedding a light on what Indigenous communities say they need to heal. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission was was definitely a, a stepping stool. We definitely needed something like that uh, to open the doors to allow our communities to hear that we are taking a step forward. By 2015, the Commission had summarized its findings in 94 calls to action to, quote, redress the legacy of residential schools and advance the process of Canadian reconciliation. So that's how Canada's been dealing with the ghosts from its past. Meanwhile, the U.S. is also trying to reconcile with a similar legacy of abuse and trauma. First British settlers, and then the U.S. government, try to deal with indigenous people for a long time, through genocide or displacement. But it wasn't until the late 1800s that the government started a different tactic. This is when the federal government makes a switch in its federal Indian policy. And so instead of forcibly removing Native peoples from their lands and moving them onto reservations, the government moves towards this kind of two-pronged strategy of allotment and assimilation. And a key facet of these assimilationist policies was aimed at the removal of Native children from their reservations to off-reservation boarding schools. And over the years, many have blamed these boarding schools for the death of many Native kids and the incalculable loss of century-old cultures. By the way, that's Dr. Katrina Phillips. I am Dr. Katrina Phillips. I'm an enrolled member of the Redcliffe Band of Lake Superior Ojibwe, and I'm an assistant professor of history at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I'm talking to her about the history of boarding schools in the United States. The idea of these boarding schools originated with a man named Richard Henry Pratt, who was a career military officer. And in the 1870s, he decided to basically like experiment Hmm. on native prisoners of war in Florida. And so he introduced classes in several subjects and he becomes convinced that native people needed to remove all elements of indigeneity from their lives, convert to Christianity, leave the reservations. And he's, he's most well known for a speech he gave in 1892 where he talks about how this great general had once said that the only good Indian is a dead Indian. And Pratt was like, I agree with that idea in theory, but you know what we can do is kill the Indian in him and save the man. 
What were the conditions for these native kids at the boarding schools? The conditions were awful. At the schools, Native American children were strictly prohibited from practicing any part of their native culture. Students were often abused and humiliated in order to enforce these policies. In many instances, schools were overcrowded and there wasn't great public sanitation and things like that. On arrival, the kids were stripped of their clothing. They were bathed in kerosene or harsh lye soap. Epidemics ran rampant through the schools. You know, children died from tuberculosis, from measles. Dr. Daniel Heath Justice had a Twitter thread. I think it was back in, um, in June when he had this Twitter thread. But he argued that, you know, if the curriculum at these institutions was dedicated entirely to manual labor, if attendance is enforced by police, if withholding food is used to control behavior, if children don't have access to healthcare and medicine, then it's a labor camp, it's not a school. And so I think that's a really powerful way to kind of really get at the heart of what these institutions were actually doing. When you have a body like the U.S. government um, try to kill the Indian out of a man through these schools, um, that has to have an impact. I mean, the, the, the government is trying to have an impact. So what was the impact on, on Native peoples and tribes across the U.S.? It's kind of hard to overstate the devastation of these boarding schools because when you have children who are forcibly removed from their families and yes, you know, a lot of the attention now is given to the children who have never come home. And that is, it is such a loss that is beyond words. But for those who did come home and who could no longer communicate with their families, you know, children would be beaten if they were caught speaking their native language. She had actually gotten uh, uh, punched in the face for speaking her language. And, she and so that history, that legacy, is one that is still maintained throughout generations. Um, she also told us that she did not teach us um, her language, which was Ojibwe, because she didn't want us to experience what she went through. It was her way of protecting us. And it is a really lingering event and you know for people to be like well you know this happened so long ago when it's something like this when it is the deliberate destruction of your languages of your cultures of your people you don't just forget it is this history of forced labor and erasing of native people's culture something that the u.s government has acknowledged at any point in its history it's one thing to kind of talk about the announcement that comes out of, you know, Secretary Holland's office about this forthcoming initiative. I'm announcing and sharing with you all, first, that the department will launch the federal Indian boarding school initiative. But as a whole, this is something the government has not acknowledged or paid attention to, and it's something that we do need to pay attention to. We must uncover the truth about the loss of human life and the lasting consequences of these schools. The initiative is one step, but another step would be the federal government's acknowledgement of what has happened, because this was a federal Indian policy. And when we think about the discoveries in Canada and things like that, a lot of that conversation is around the church. Mm -hmm. And it's it seems like the Canadian government is trying to distance itself. Here in the United States, this was 
the federal Indian policy of that era. And so if we're going to talk about culpability and guilt, it is directly on the federal government. And that's something they have yet to fully acknowledge outside of this announcement from our first native cabinet secretary. I come from ancestors who endured the horrors of Indian boarding school assimilation policies carried out by the same department that I now lead. Yeah, and, and you're talking about that announcement where she said they're going to investigate the, the Indian boarding schools. What are you hoping comes out of it? And what do you think would be a, a productive outcome um, that sets you know the path forward? Answers. And I think, you know, with with what's everything that's being found in in Canada and things like that, it happened here. Children who went to Carlisle um, from a reservation out in the Dakotas have just been brought home. And so, you know, for Native nations to have the chance to get their children back, there are so many other pieces that are at play here, right? Because the children who were lost were not only you know, relatives and family members and things like that. Like by this point, they would have been our elders, right? They would have been the language teachers and the ones to teach us about our cultures and our histories and things like that. And that loss, mm-hmm. I mean, like how how do you repay that, right? How do you offer reparations for something of that magnitude? And, you know, whether it's acknowledgement at you know, the federal level, whether it's, you know, the government stepping forward and offering funding for language classes, for history classes, for cultural classes and things like that. There are so many different potential avenues, but, you know, at at the same time, what I keep coming back to is it's like, how do you repay? Like, how do you, what is the price that you pay when the devastation is like of such an incredible magnitude? So one question I keep seeing is, like, why are we just learning about this now? Like, why is this just happening now? I mean, Native people, both in the U.S. and in Canada, I mean, they've always known. Right? Because, you know, when you hear stories about your ancestors who were taken away and never came back. I mean, the fact that all of these graves are unmarked, I mean, you don't put markers on something you're trying to hide. It is an important piece of American history, of Canadian history. And it should be part of these broader conversations if people are going to truly understand this history. As part of the initiative announced by Secretary Deb Holland, who is a member of the Pueblo of Laguna, the Department of Interior will look at cemeteries or potential unmarked gravesites where children may have been buried. To address the intergenerational impact of Indian boarding schools, and to promote spiritual and emotional healing in our communities, we must shed light on the unspoken traumas of the past, no matter how hard it will be. The findings of this investigation, including potential burial sites and other long-term trauma, are expected to be summarized in a report due April of next year. We are therefore uniquely positioned to assist in the effort to recover the dark history of these institutions that have haunted our families for too long. It's our responsibility. Today's episode included music composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. The Politico Dispatch team includes Jeremy Siegel, Senior Editor Raguma Navalin, Senior Producer Jenny Amond, and Executive Producer Irina Gucci. Special thanks to Olivia Reingold. I'm Carlos Prieto. Thanks for listening.